So if you'll take your Bible and turn to Genesis 12, we uh, are looking at the book of Genesis, and now we're finally in uh, the story of Abraham. In other words, uh, we're looking at how God saves. The story of Abraham is a lesson about how God saves. We are not going to do a whole review of Genesis 1 through 11 again today, which may amaze you because I've probably done uh, six of those. Uh, but I like, there's always more, there's always more. Uh, but Genesis 1 through 11, uh, the Bible opens by describing the problem, which is uh, not just a problem with Israel, but a problem in the world, and shows us that uh, the world is far from God. The world is in exile, in a sense. We've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, kicked out of the presence of God, and uh, we can't get back in, and we really... At the end of Genesis 11, we don't really want back in. That's part of the problem. We want a kingdom uh, without God. Then uh, Genesis 12 through 25, now we're beginning to look at God's response. And what we're going to see is that God is taking a step forward to save the world. God has this unbreakable, unrelenting desire to show his generosity to human beings and to bless and we can't stop it and so he is taking a step forward in genesis 12 to save the world and reverse the curse by choosing a very unlikely person to do it whose name is abram it's going to be abraham so i'll go back and forth uh, because god changes his name but his name is abram And he's an old man when God calls him. He's already uh, 75. And in the day that God called him, in that day, he would have seemed as if he were cursed um, because uh, he wasn't able to have uh, children. And he was from a family of idolaters. And so this is not someone who you would expect to be the key to solving all the problems in the universe. But very clearly, Moses says he is the one. And Genesis 12 to 25 is going to tell his story. And yet, like we said last week, not all of it, obviously, because Abram lived for 175 years. But Moses starts his story at age 75. And then he goes all the way to 175. And he chooses specific stories. We're we're missing a lot of Abram's life, really. We don't know hardly anything about the first 75 years. And even over the course of the 100 years that we're given, uh, there's a lot of gaps. So we're only getting a selection of these stories because for some reason, Moses thinks these are the key stories for helping us understand how salvation works and God's plan for the universe. And so what we're getting in Genesis, really, is a way of looking at and understanding God and understanding the world, what matters, and what God expects from us. So uh, this is part of what makes it important because we're being told uh, stories even now by the culture in which we live to give us a framework constantly of what makes sense, stories to help us understand what is viable, Stories to help us see things we wouldn't have seen before, to give us vision. And stories 
to tell us what's valuable. This is what is beautiful. This is what matters. It's fun to watch uh, TV shows about other cultures because you see that. Like it, as you watch TV shows about other cultures, you realize, wow, they are often living by a whole different set of priorities. There's some something in this story doesn't click, doesn't make sense and to me, and yet it makes sense to them. And part of why it makes sense to them is because our culture that we grow up in is telling us this is how life's supposed to be lived. This is what is significant. And books like Genesis, how they're designed to work, is to show us God's perspective on those things. So what does God want from us? He, we're going to see as we look at the book of Genesis that God wants us to trust him. And so part of the reason we have these stories is to show us why that makes sense to trust God. As we read these stories, we're like, okay, we're learning. That's a, that, that, is, that is a good way to live. That's a way to live that there's, there are reasons to live that way. These stories help us see and understand the world in a way that we wouldn't have understood it before. So that's a big part of the purpose of the Bible. Uh, the Bible, uh, for example, tells us that creation is designed to see the glory of, to show us the glory of God. So before we have the Bible, maybe we would look out and say that's beautiful. But now that we have the Bible, we're starting to see, oh, that part of why this sunset matters is because it's there to help me learn how to praise God. The Bible, these stories give us vision. They help us see things we wouldn't have seen if we were just living our own life without scripture and they show us they show us these stories will show us what is what is beautiful what kind of what kind of life actually um, is a life that makes God happy um, what kind of life is a life that has purpose and so those are the kinds of questions that are driving us as we look at these stories why are they here? They're here to teach us how to think, to teach us to look at how to look at the world. And so we're asking as we read these stories, how do they demonstrate that God's way of looking at the world makes sense? How do they help us see things we wouldn't have seen in our world before? And how do they show us God's plan is beautiful? Which takes work, even as we sit down to study them, because while they're interesting stories, you read them. And sometimes they feel a little random, and it can be challenging to know how they fit together or what point exactly they're making. And so where do you begin? We're going to look at the story of Abraham, at least beginning tonight. It's going to take a while. But you're sitting down with the story of Abraham in your devotions, maybe, and you're saying to yourself, I want to get the point. I want to, I want to understand what God's doing with these stories. How do I begin? Well, one way to begin is by looking at the ending. So this is something that a man named Michael Morales, and he's an Old Testament scholar, has said, and I think it's helpful. It makes sense because usually stories are taking you somewhere. And the ending is often the exclamation point. So the Abraham stories end in Genesis chapter 25, verses 7 through 11. So uh, turn there. Genesis 12 through 50 are three main stories. Abram, you would think it would be Isaac, but no, 
it's actually Jacob. Uh, and then Joseph, and, and not just Joseph, Joseph and, Ju- Joseph and Judah. But the story of Abram is told in Genesis 12 through 25. So Genesis 1 through 11, the problem with the world. Genesis 12 through 25, Abram. And the Abraham story ends in verses uh, 7 through 11 of Genesis 25. And, and what does it say? Moses writes, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. Then Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy which doesn't sound too exciting. But what are the facts? So how does this story end? What are some of the things that you notice? Just the basic facts. How does the story end when you look down at that? What stands out to you about just what do you observe? So that's the first thing I put. He is an old man, 175 years which is a blessing to live that old, to live that. I mean, when you're that old, maybe you don't think it's a blessing, but it is a, it is a blessing. <laughs> what else do you notice? He's buried by two, by two sons here, Isaac and Ishmael. And he's buried in a certain place, and it's pretty specific about where, right? Cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron. And it tells us that Abraham purchased it. One key to reading Old Testament narrative is just say names you don't can't, don't know with a lot of confidence, because uh, no, nobody really knows how to pronounce them, or maybe somebody does, but he's not in this church probably. Um, he is. What else do you know? He's buried with Sarah, and then it tells us what else. How does it end in verse eleven? God blessed Isaac, his son. Now, if that's the conclusion, that's the basic conclusion, what are some questions we might ask about it? One, we might ask, okay, so that's where the story is going. We might ask, how does it fit with Genesis 1 through 11? So Abram is the next story after Genesis 1 through 11, and this is how the story ends. So how does this information move the story forward? God's story is going somewhere. So how does this move the story forward? Then we might ask, How does this fit with how the story starts? So we have to look back at what it told us about Abram and Sarah and say, okay, how does this conclusion fit with that? And then we need to ask, how does it fit with the story that goes next? So the next story is going to be about Jacob. What makes this story different from the Jacob story? Um, What is similar? But we're getting context. That's the point. First, from the book of Genesis as a whole, we know that this story, this set of stories about Abram, is in a section about the solution. And Genesis 1 through 11 has said the solution is going to be the seed. So we know we've got a worldwide problem, and the solution, or the answer, is in the seed of the woman. And so this identifies the seed. Clearly, it's Isaac. God bless Isaac. 
which is big. You remember it's like a ring, we said. Uh, you're watching who does this. This is the, the person who holds this ring or has this ring is the key to the, is the one God's using to solve all the problems of the world. And you're watching this ring get passed down from generation to generation. And so the Abraham story shows us the ring being passed from Abraham very clearly to Isaac which is obviously important because you want to know. And if we think about the immediate context, the way the story starts, the ending is surprising because Abraham is 75 years old at the beginning of the story and his wife Sarai is barren. And yet by the end, there's two sons. And so that tells you what? It tells you you need a story. How does a 75-year-old man with a barren wife have children? Two children. And if we look at what comes next, it says these are the generations of Ishmael. Genesis 25:12 says these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. And then uh, Genesis 25:19 says these are the generations of Isaac. And so there's a little conflict there. We already read God blessed Isaac, his son. And so we're asking, well, what about Ishmael? We're asking the question, why Isaac and not Ishmael? Does God not care about Ishmael? which is a help for reading these stories. What are we looking for? What are these stories going to do? These stories are here to help us see how God raises up the seed that he promised in the face of impossible circumstances. And that's exciting for us because we know the seed is going to be the one who defeats the serpent, and Moses is identifying that seed more specifically for us, which is a start. But we can probably do more than that if we uh, look more carefully at the way the story begins. Uh, so we looked at the end to get an idea where the story is going. But now let's look more specifically at the beginning, uh, so, which is basically Genesis 12, 1 through 9. So turn to Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Where we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And so this is the beginning. And we should ask, what's going on here? Um, what are the facts? What are just the basic bare bone uh, facts that happen in this passage? Where, where does it start? It starts with what? Starts with blessing, yeah. Even before that, what to, what happens? And this is a blessing. 
God talked to Abram, which is pretty big, right? I think it's big. God, God reveals himself. And we assume that this happened while he was living in Haran because verse 4, uh, we read, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. But in Acts, Stephen actually tells us that God appeared to him in Ur. And so this move probably occurred in stages. God came to Abram in Ur and said to go. And then he left and for some reason stopped in Haran, which was a little out of the way. And then God came again. But however it worked exactly, we see here that God's giving Abram a command and a promise. And what's the command? It's familiar. Go. (laughs) Go from your country and kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And what's the promise? This is this is worth looking at carefully because this is one of the most important promises in the whole Bible. And uh, definitely sets the stage for the rest of Genesis through at least through. Yeah, through Deuteronomy and on. Um, But what does God promise Abram? He says, I will what? There's a lot of I wills, first of all, when we read that. So that's important to notice. How many I wills? I will show you. I will make you. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. So quite a few I wills. Clearly, God's the one who does this. But what does God say that he will do? I will make you a great... Nation, And then if you look down at uh, verse 7, he says, To your offspring I will give this land, which assumes that Abraham's going to have children, descendants. So he promises Abraham descendants, first of all. That's the first part of the promise, descendants. And then he talks about blessing. And there's a lot of blessing. It's blessing for Abram and through Abram to the whole world. So we're seeing here the generosity of God on display. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But the opening chapters of the Bible are an illustration of God's lavish generosity. And then land. He says, go to the land that I will show you. And in verse 7, he says, to your offspring I will give this land. And so seed, land, and blessing for Abram and for the nations. And the blessing for the nations is the climax of the promise. So this kind of makes more specific the idea that we were just talking about. Abraham's going to have seed. And this tells us God's going to be the one who does this. It's going to be a miracle. And that seed is going to be given land, which is filling out how God's going to go about salvation. And they're going to be used to be a blessing to the nations. And if we think back to Genesis 1 through 11 again, we can start with the flow of these stories. We think back to Genesis 1 through 11. God creates the world. I'm not going to go so long, so don't get scared. Then Adam sins. He's sent away from the presence of God. He's sent into exile. Cain sins. He's sent into exile. Then the sons of God sin, and the world's filled with sin, and God judges, restarts. Noah and Ham sin then. After God restarts, the crowd sins at the Tower of Babel. So there's sin, sin, judgment in the first cycle. Uh, uh, from Adam to Noah. And then there's sin, sin again. And there's a little bit of surprise. It's sin, sin. But instead of judgment, we read blessing. So if you think about God as a host who wants to show hospitality, this makes Genesis 12 stand out to me. Imagine God creates this incredible world to bless human beings. 
And then human beings say, I don't trust that you're very generous. <laughs> I don't trust your goodness. I think I need to take care of myself. And I think I've got a better plan for what's good and evil for me. And man is sent into exile. And God judges, but he, he, he steps in. He, he's got this desire to show his generosity. And what happens? People keep spurning God's generosity until the whole world is basically spitting at God. And so God says, you know what? Let's, let's wash this place up. Let's start again. And he shows incredible generosity to Noah. And he uh, brings Noah out. He, he makes basically the same promises to Noah that are, says basically the same thing to Noah that he said to Adam. And then what happens? People basically spurn God's hospitality all over again, God's generosity all over again, until the whole world bands together and says, we don't trust that you're good. We don't trust that you, you, your plan. We think we need to come together so that we can take care of ourselves. And uh, if you were a host and you were trying to show generosity to people and people kept spurning you like that, what would you do? You would probably say, forget it. But what does God do? God says, you know what? I'm going to choose an individual through whom I can bring blessing to the world. Because I, I want to show just how gracious and generous we I am. And we look at the specific ways God says he's going to bless Abram. And what God was saying that he wanted to do in the first place, and there's a parallel. So if you look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, maybe you can just do this on your own sometime. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And what you see is what God says in Genesis 1, 26 through 8 to man that he wants him to do, that he's going to do for him. God now says to Abram, this is what I'm going to do for you. So he tells man to be fruitful and multiply. And here God is going to multiply Abraham's descendants. He tells man to fill the earth and subdue it. And he promises Abram land. He uh, creates man in his image so that they he can have a relationship with them. And so that he can um, they can he creates a garden which is like a temple where they can experience his special presence. And as we look at Abram and his descendants, we see, we're going to see by the time we get to the end of Exodus that the whole goal is so that God could live with man again. And then it says God blessed the man and the woman. And we see here that God blessed Abraham. And so it's almost like this is how I designed the world to work. It got messed up. Now let's hit restart. And Moses is showing us through Abram, God's going to deal with the problems man's sin has brought into the world because we've got all these nations that don't know God. And here God says, in you, Abram, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And we've got the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent at war. And here God promises Abram to protect the seed of the woman. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And Abram, we get the protection that we need, the protection of the seed. And then we've got problems with the land as well. And God's talking here about giving Abraham a certain land. And so that makes us wonder, is this the means that he's going to use to fix the problems in the land? And then we've got problems in our relationship with God. 
And at the beginning of Abram's life, we see him building altars and doing what Seth and his descendants were doing, calling on the name of the Lord, which is a really good sign. And so we're looking at Abram at the beginning here and we're wondering, maybe Abram's going to help us move forward in our relationship with God too. And so as we're reading these stories, it's like Moses is saying at the beginning, what you're about to read is how God is going to bring blessing to the nations and reverse the curse through Abram. As someone has put it, Abram will be the means by which God will accomplish his original intention to bless mankind in response to the sin and alienation of humans from God, which means this is huge. This is huge. And, you know, I think that it's really helpful to read this story as a response to the story of the Tower of Babel. Because uh, what's happening in the Tower of Babel? If you think of Genesis 11, what's happening? The people are migrating somewhere. They're going somewhere and they're making a city for themselves. And they say the purpose. Listen to what they say is their purpose in Genesis 11:4. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So they basically say the reason they're doing what they're doing is what? To make a name for themselves and so that they don't have to do what God commanded, which is man's agenda. <laughs> they're not trusting God. And I think you could say this is man's solution to the problems of Genesis 1 through 11. We're going to do this without God. We're going to do this in opposition to God. We're not going to believe. It was scary to fill the world at that time. We don't think of that because we got all these planes and we're traveling all over the world. But spreading out and filling the whole world, that's very frightening in those days. And they're saying, no, we don't believe God can take care of us. Let's band together so that we can protect ourselves because we can do this better than God can. And what's the result? It's chaos and confusion and conflict and hate, which is just this big biblical theme from the beginning. Man is constantly refusing to trust the generosity of God and instead taking things into his own hands and creating his own strategy. So that's basically the Garden of Eden. After that, Genesis 4. This is another example, at least to think about, that, that maybe you haven't seen before. But Genesis 4. Cain and Seth. So Genesis 4.1. I just want to show you this because it's so fun. And I saw this today, so for free. But Cain, this Genesis 4.1 is the story of Adam knowing Eve, and she conceives and bears a son named Cain. And uh, Cain has the same Hebrew letters as the word create. So it says, she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Uh, could be trans. Then that could be translated, I have brought forth a man, or I've created a man. So a lot of Hebrew, is, the way they write, it's really interesting. It didn't have those vowel pointings. So you can have two different words with the same consonants. So they look exactly alike. And so the word Cain looks just like the word create, except for the vowels which go under. And they were actually even put in uh, later. And so the word Cain looks like the word create. And she's saying, I've gotten a man. But she, you could say she's actually saying, I've created a man. And it says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But that's a translation. So it literally says, I've gotten a man with the Lord. And they're trying to, the people who wrote the, or 
who translated the ESV are trying to help you understand what the word with means there. But that word apparently uh, is never used with the verb help. Uh, but a way that it is used is uh, in comparison. So there are places in the Bible where this word with is translated actually in comparison. So it could be, this is just an idea, but it's worth thinking about. It could be that she's saying, I have created a man in comparison with the Lord. In other words, it's like she's boasting. I did this. I did this. And what happened? Chaos. But then that interpretation becomes a little more compelling, I suppose, when you look at what changes in her down in verse uh, 25 of chapter four. uh, four. She uh, has another son after all this chaos with Cain. And she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of of Abel, for Cain killed him. Um, Basically, God has set thus is what she says. Um, And Seth means gift or grant. So it's like she's saying, as she looks at Seth, she's learned her lesson. This is not something I've created. This is something I've been given. And that uh, is kind of a theme, actually, as you look at Genesis 1 through 11 and the whole book of Genesis. When you uh, see man taking things into his own hands, making his own strategy, uh, I'm, I'm going to do this on my own. I, I am equal to God. I'm going to be the God of my own life. This is what results, uh, Tower of Babel kind of stuff. But trust in God, much different results. And the same is, is true here because Genesis 11 is man's strategy. And then Genesis 12 is God's strategy. Uh, God's like, Abram, you go in faith. And what's going to happen? I'm going to make your name great. So man's like, we're going to do this. We're going to make our name great. We don't know any of their names. And, and the name of the city is confusion. God says, Abram, I'm going to do what they were trying to do. And that tells us how salvation works. As we look at Abram, we're going to look at how God provides salvation, reverses the curse, and brings blessing. And it's going to be very different, very, very different than how man normally thinks, the man's strategy. From the beginning, there are these two paths of salvation, man and God's, even in the garden, then with Cain, and then with the Tower of Babel and Abram. And as we look at Jacob, Jacob keeps trying to come up with his own strategy and uh, messing everything up. And yet God finds a way to do exactly what he said he was going to do to bring blessing in spite of Jacob. And now with Abram, we're going to look at how God's plan works. And uh, it's exciting. And yet there's a lot to think about as we approach this set of stories, like, okay, God's made a promise to Abram, but how does this promise work? Is there anything more that I need to know? How do we live in light of it? And those are some of the questions that Moses is going to be answering as he tells us these stories about Abram. I think of these stories about Abraham almost like a big overview. It's like Moses is saying, these are the basic principles you need to know 
about how salvation works that the rest of the Old Testament is going to flesh out. But he begins by posing some questions about Abram. Because in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God told Abram something. Here's the promise. I'm going to do all this for you, and here's what you need to do. You need to go. You need to throw yourself on my generosity. You need to trust. And yet, look at his response. So God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Which means that he's calling on Abram, basically, to trust him and sacrifice his family. So you didn't just leave your father's house back then. That was your health care. I mean, that was everything. And it's hard for us to process the kind of challenge that God's giving Abram living when we live. But the way I heard someone describe it recently was, imagine space travel. Imagine God asking you to go colonize Mars. Because that's basically what it would have felt like to Abram. And what... What if God said, "Be bear fruit, multiply, fill the universe, not just the earth, and came to you and said, I want you to be the family that goes to Mars. Actually, leave your family and go to Mars. And what does Abram do in response? Verse 4 starts out beautiful. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And there's good in there. Abram went. And he tells us, as the Lord told him, so that's positive. But still there's a question, right? Because he's supposed to leave his kindred and his father's house, and yet we see Lot coming with him. And who's Lot? Lot is the son of Haran. That's one of the first things the text tells us. Haran fathered Lot, Abraham's brother. And then it says Haran died. So Lot is now like in the place of Abraham's brother. And so it's a little like as we read this, wait, God chooses Abram. But does Abram really fear God? Because he doesn't fully obey. So that's a question that we need resolved, actually, by the end of the Abraham story. From the beginning, is Abram willing to bank everything on God's promises and God's goodness and God's generosity? At the first, it it mostly looks like he is, but there's still a little wiggle room, still a little of a question. What is going on? And I'm not really sure Moses answers that question. I think he just plants it. We have some questions about Abram that we're going to need to think about. Um, one thing I, I think we need to encourage the church with is the Bible's not math. You know, like if you approach the Bible uh, narrative stories like math, it doesn't quite work like that. Like it's meant to make you think and and wonder. And as you read, there's there's answers and some things you still question, but it's because it's part of the design. We're in a relationship with God. He's not technology, you know, like boop, 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 beep, something comes out. This is part of how you have you have a relationship. You ask questions, you you think, you you are forced to study more. And so as we read this, he took Lot with him. We don't know for sure whether that's good or bad. It, it doesn't seem great. We have some questions, but there's no question about God. God's going to keep his promise to Abram. If you look at verse 7, he says, To your offspring I will give this land. So he identifies. This is the spot. But what happens right after that great promise? There's a problem, verse 10. So the first story is promised. Then there's this question as we look at Lot. And now there's a problem. And what's the problem? 
This is a test. Will Abram trust God's promise? Moses says, uh, verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land. And what land? The land that God promised Abram. And actually, if we read the whole verse, we see he repeats the word famine. Now there was a famine in the land, for the famine was severe in the land. And again, this is hard for us because we've got grocery stores and all of that, so it's hard for us even to imagine what it would be like to experience a famine. But famines were a big problem in the ancient world. But this would have seemed like a particular problem to Abram because this is happening, at least in terms of how Moses tells the story, this is happening right after God made all these big promises about Canaan and about offspring and about a blessing. And yet, a famine seems more like a curse. And actually, when we get to uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we'll see that a famine in the promised land was a curse, for sure. So God says, I'm going to bless you. And first thing, here's a famine. And so it must have seemed confusing. And what does Abram do? End of verse 10. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, which is like, stop. Whoa. I think that's the first time we read the word Egypt in the Bible. But we look at that and we're asking, is that the right decision or the wrong decision? And I'm sure Israel would have been asking that because where were they standing as Moses was writing all these stories? They were standing on the brink of the promised land and Moses was trying to motivate them. We got to get in there. And now they see Abraham leaving the promised land. The first time things get difficult. And where was he going? He was going to Egypt. And so if I was coming out of Egypt, having been a slave in Egypt, and I was reading this for the first time, I might wonder, why are you going down to Egypt? Don't go there, Abram. But Moses doesn't say exactly whether this is right or wrong. And you have to get comfortable with that as you're reading narratives. Sometimes the author will tell you. Sometimes he just leaves it there. And so we don't know absolutely for sure. We need more information. I think it's probably not a good decision because when we look at the story of Isaac later, uh, Isaac experiences something very similar to Abraham, a famine. And yet God comes and tells him specifically, don't go to Egypt. And yet he still finds a way to make the same mistake uh, Abraham did while he was in Egypt, but we'll get there. I, I don't know whether going to Egypt was a good decision, but I do know his next move was not a good decision for sure. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. And reading that, how do you respond? I, I hope you respond, what? It's definitely weird, because uh, it's, it's weird that Sarai is so beautiful, that Abram's worried that she'll be taken um, as someone's wife, and yet she's like 65 years old here. So that... Uh, Seems maybe a little strange um, for that kind of worry to be going on. But what's what's going on? Maybe God is preserving her in a miraculous way. That might be it. Uh, so that she does not look 65 <laughs> in, in, to, to Pharaoh. 
But what we really need to understand, however that works, is what's going on in Abraham's mind. And that's the part of the, the, that the author does reveal. Um, I'm, I'm just talking not about age. Age is wonderful. I'm just talking about the way people normally think about age. So um, maybe I didn't say that well. For all the 65-year-old and above, so I didn't mean that in a negative way. But um, what is he thinking? Because I'm not that far myself. And my wife is, I'm guarding her from Pharaoh for sure. She's uh, not 65, but she, we're both on our way. Um, but God's made this promise to him, and how is he processing his life? He's looking at his circumstances, and he's thinking his wife is beautiful, and this is a dangerous place, and this is what will happen, and so what do I need to do? I need to come up with a plan to rescue myself. You're not really thinking about Sarah, which is... Very sad, but he is thinking about himself and a strategy to rescue himself, which already our instincts just from the first few chapters of the Bible should tell us this is not the right direction. This is a terrible decision, and it's especially terrible given what Abraham already knows, because he knows that God's promised to take care of him. God like literally appeared to him and said, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And yet he's saying, I can't trust God's generosity. Look at what just happened. I had a famine. There was a famine. Clearly, I can't trust God's generosity, so I need to come up with my own scheme. And this is a terrible scheme because it's putting the seed in jeopardy. God said, I'm going to give you descendants uh, through Sarah. And obviously, we know the seed's supposed to be the one who reverses the curse. And now he just gave Sarah away, and it does damage to his family. It's dehumanizing to Sarah. She doesn't even speak in this story. It's, it's, uh, it's really tragic. It's just Abram abusing his authority. And so we read this story and we might be asking, is God able to take care of the seed, fulfill his promise in dangerous situations? Because Abram clearly doesn't think so. And what happens? What happens is almost exactly what Abram thought would happen, actually. But worse, because it's not just the Egyptians who take Sarah, it's Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And you can see what's happening to Sarah there. She's almost like an object. She's just, she's not even called Sarah at the end, the woman. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And yet she brings blessing to Abram. Moses says, for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants. Underline that one because that's going to come up later. Female donkeys and camels, which almost looks like a win for Abram. Not quite because he doesn't have Sarah. But you might say it's the best of a bad situation. And it turns out the way he was planning. So it's like I'm in trouble. I make a strategy and it works in the short term. But it puts God's long-term plan for the reversal of the curse in jeopardy at least from a human perspective, because here Sarah is now in Pharaoh's harem. But does this stop God? No, of course not. What does God do? Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so Abram and Pharaoh put the seed under threat because how are Abram and Sarah going to have an offspring and bring blessing to the world if she's married to another person? And God responds by sending plagues on Pharaoh which keep that in mind because that is going to happen again. The seed, Pharaoh is going to put the seed under threat and God's going to respond by sending plagues 
on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gets upset and he asks Abram, why did you do this? End of verse 18. Here is your wife. Take her and go. And he sends Abram out of Egypt with all kinds of stuff. Which answers our question, can God protect the seed? Yes, clearly. Abram fails and gets himself in trouble, but God intervenes. God will protect the seed. You don't need to. You must not take matters into your own hands. And it gives us a little preview of what's going to happen in Exodus. And you know, if we take this story and we plug it into the bigger question regarding how salvation works, what do we learn? We learn that it's God's faithfulness to his promise that is going to ensure the success of the seed. And that us strategizing and relying on ourselves is only going to do us damage. And so what values are we getting from this? What are we seeing here as viable? What do these stories enable us to see that we might not have seen on our own? In, in what ways do these stories uh, make those values beautiful? I think we're seeing God is really, really good. And he really, really wants us to trust him. And if we're going to be scared of anything, we should be scared of not trusting God. And we're seeing that just because God makes promises doesn't always mean that life will be easy. But when life isn't easy, the test is, are we going to trust God's promises? If you were using this story to counsel an Israelite before they entered the promised land, what would you say? How could you use this story to counsel an Israelite before they enter the promised land? Because that's how Moses is using it. Anybody have an idea of how you could use this story to counsel an Israelite before they enter the promised land? Yes, wait on God's timing. You're going to be tempted when you get scared to try to come up with, you're going to try to compromise. Don't do it. God... God's got this. God's got this. He's had it in much worse situations. Abraham by himself with the king of Egypt. God's able to take care of it. What about someone now? If you were using uh, this story to counsel someone now. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Be prepared. And the way you can prepare is by knowing the character of God. Knowing that for, like my mom used to tell me, for thousands and thousands of years, Joshua, God has never broken a promise. And he's not going to start breaking his promises for little old you. He, he is going to keep his promises. We need to know his promises. We need to trust his promises. And that's just the start of the Abraham story. We'll uh, dive into chapter 13 um, next week. But one of the things I did give you, you can see instead of notes, is a list of questions. So if you want to use those questions, Genesis uh, 12 through 25, as you do devotions, they may help you as you read these stories and come to see um, more here than you've seen uh, before. But do you have any thoughts or questions as we end? Yeah, I say yeah. So, so I never, uh, never thought of it, but did, I mean, did Abraham need to bring Lot as a substitute? Yeah. Uh, as a descendant of Abraham? You wonder. That's a real question. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. There's a lot going on with Lot, actually, in these stories. So we're going to probably come back to that to that question. Yeah. Yeah. And she comes up with this terrible plan on her of her own as well. She's going to take it into her own hands later and it's going to we're still experiencing the consequences of Sarah taking things into her own hands. Still like major battles and wars and false religions. Oh. Uh, Seems like it. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, over and over and over. So this is so cool about reading the Bible because what he's giving you is a way of thinking that can really help you. It's like, should I be surprised that God doesn't usually take the direct route? <laughs> like, I look at thousands of years of history and it seems like God is interested in something more than just the direct route. Like he starts with Abram 75 and there's a lot of time markers it's almost like Moses is making sure you, you see, like, oh, he's 99 now. Nothing's happened. Oh, he's this age now. Nothing's happened. Um, because he wa- I think he wants you definitely to see that. Even there was a famine. Famine, you know. We don't know exactly when that happened, but Moses puts it there right after the promise. Now there was a famine, almost like to say, hey, hey, God is interested in something more than just this being easy. He, he's working something out in Abram's life. I think by the end, he wants he wants to see uh, and he wants Abraham to have this opportunity to rely completely on God and on his grace um, after a lot of missteps, after a lot of missteps. But I really hope as we study that this is the kind of thing, and as you study the Bible, I hope more and more um, that we see the Bible's sufficient And as we come to the word of God, it's enough. It can really help us think through life and live our lives. Um, And as we come to stories like this, yes, we and even as we come to preaching on Sunday, I'm going to say this a lot in the future. And we're not just trying to get our notes all right. And like one, two, three. um, I know all the all the I can I know all the data we want to know that data so that. We can think different and live different and uh, relate to people different and relate to God differently. And so it really is really, really, really important that you're working so often. What I've seen is we don't make we don't connect the dots. And um, 
and it's a real challenge as you as you come to church a lot because you get a lot more information. And so you assume that you connected the dots because you have all this information. And so somebody talks to you about Abraham, you're like, I know Abraham. I don't even barely need to listen. But you haven't connected the dots in your own life, the lessons that you should learn from Abram to be able to live, to be able to live and think in a way that honors God. And so that's a really a um, really something we need to be on our knees about, but also something that we need to challenge one another with. This book is is not just here to give us, you know, lots of facts. It's here to shape us what we love, what we what we want, what we hate, how we how we think. And uh, we don't really know um, the the we don't even really know these stories until it's doing that in us. We might know some of the superficial information about these stories, but we don't really know these stories the way God wants us to know them until we are learning to connect some of those dots in our own lives. And um, it's beautiful when believers do. It's hard. That's part of why we need each other. Um, you can just please always know this, too. We all can know an awful lot and still be have these compartments of our lives where we're like, we could say the most amazing thing about this compartment, and because we said it, we think it's put, being put into practice, and yet a lot of times it's not, and that's part of why we need the church. We need help, like all of us. I need help, like... I need help. I've got, I'm sure, areas in my life. Hope I, 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 that's part of why you need help. You don't always know what they are. <laughs> Where the, it's like, hey, Josh knows all that, but here's this thing that he's not willing to do. But that's part of why we have uh, relationships with one another, and that's part of why it's so important. Humility is your best friend. So I keep saying to myself late, lately, Josh, being humble is your best friend. Um, humility is your best friend. So like in every situation. Um, Pray that God helps you come in it, into it with a desire to learn and be challenged and to, to grow and be scared of putting yourself in this position where you're, you're the one who just is always the expert and the guru. Um, that's a little tough sometimes because you do know more than others sometimes. But I would rather um, have that challenge than the opposite, which is... Uh, always thinking that I, I would rather be surprised that I know more than others than I would always be in the guy who thinks I'm the expert in the room. Because that guy, he, he's so often so blind and he's very hard to reach. <laughs> Where the guy who's like knows something but doesn't know that he, he knows more, you can encourage him like, hey, man. You can share it, take, have some confidence. But the other guy, the other person is really hard, hard to get. Anyway, that was extra 10 minutes. Sorry. Uh, thank you, guys. And I, when I said to bring questions, I don't think I let you ask any questions about the sermon. Um, but if you have them, uh, this week you might have more because so far this sermon it, on Sunday is going to be a little rambly. So uh, we'll see what the Lord does with it. But uh, we'll give it. I like it. I, I'm, I'm excited about it. But you, so I can imagine someone saying, Pastor, you really had some fun up there. Uh, all right, let me pray.
Father, thank you for our night. Thank you for this church. Please help us to trust that you're generous. You've shown us that you are. There's questions that we have. We do go through famines, um, but you are good. And help us to be like Abraham at the end of his life, who uh, who was willing to lay it all on the line, that you're a God who's going to keep your promises. We have Jesus. We have the resurrection. We know you are. But please help us believe it because we struggle. In your name, amen. Hey, Genesis 13 next week.